Good morning, church. It's good to be with you again. In 1872, the great author George MacDonald wrote a children's book entitled The Princess and the Goblin. And since all good children's books have goblins, I thought it would be fitting to share this story this morning. In the book, MacDonald tells the story of a little eight-year-old girl named Irene, who one day was exploring her house, and as she wandered up the stairs, she came to the mysterious attic, and she found a room there. And she spent some time in that room, and it wasn't just the mystique of the attic that excited her, it was the fact that there she met her fairy grandmother. She loved to spend time with her fairy grandmother, and whenever she would go up there and her fairy grandmother wasn't there, she would become distressed. And so one day she was telling her fairy grandmother, because apparently they exist in children's stories, fairy grandmother, I wish I could be with you all the time. I'm scared when you're not with me. So the fairy grandmother gave Irene a little ring, and she put it on her finger, and she tied a thread to it. And that thread traced all the way back into the hand of her grandmother who held the ball of thread in her hand. And she said, if you're ever scared, if you ever need me, just take this ring, put it on your finger, and, or take it off your finger, put it under your pillow, and then the thread would grow tight. And if you put your finger on that thread, you can trace it all the way back to me. So, a few nights later, Irene woke up to a horrible hissing sound, and of course she realized that goblins had invaded her home. So, she took the ring off her finger, she placed it under the pillow. She was delighted and relieved as she watched the string draw tight. She put her thumb on the thread, and she started to walk. She walked out, trembling past the door through the hall, she could still hear the goblins, and she began to move away from the home and became more afraid as she realized that the thread took her into a cave, a dark cave, and the, the sounds of the goblins grew louder, the hissing increased, and she, to her horror, turned down a tunnel, still with her finger on the thread, and as she went down this tunnel, she had a friend, a friend named Curdie, who said, Irene, you can't go that way, it's blocked, that's not the way. Sure enough, she came and saw that the tunnel was blocked with a heap of rocks and that the thread went right into the middle of the rocks. Terrified and trembling, she said, this is the way the thread goes and my grandmother said I must follow it, so I'll follow it. We've been on a whirlwind tour of the book of Exodus, which is perhaps one of the most exciting books in the Bible. The scene in Exodus began when Israel, who had been enslaved under Pharaoh in Egypt for 400 years. And if you have been in church before, if you've read the scriptures before, you should know that this is really important. And it's of particular interest to God. Because Israel was not just any nation. They were God's chosen people. Do you remember the promise that he gave to Abraham and to Sarah? I will make you a great nation. And in you... All the nations of the earth will be blessed. How could God be making Israel a great nation? They were enslaved to a great nation. It didn't seem like God was keeping his promise. 
But in Exodus chapter 2, we see this beautiful sentence. And it says, And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. He knew their suffering. And so God began an incredible and historic display of His mighty power. He raised up Moses. He gave him a staff and a word and a promise. And Moses went into Egypt. He stood before Pharaoh. And as Tim saw, uh, helped us see a few weeks ago, God worked to get Israel out of Egypt. It wasn't just a practical problem that God was trying to solve. God did it with flair. No, God was giving a concert. He was putting on a showcase, displaying His glory. God was writing the script and He had such meticulous control over Israel's circumstances. And then in a climactic display of power, God established Himself supreme. And at midnight, He passed through Egypt after nine other plagues and He struck dead the firstborn of any home that didn't have the lamb of a blood, the blood of a lamb. Finally, a broken Pharaoh released Israel, and then plundering the Egyptians, God led Israel out. And which way did he lead him? Straight towards the Red Sea. Well, an enraged Pharaoh took the mightiest army on earth, and he came up and he pursued them. And with the Red Sea right in front of them and Pharaoh's army behind them, God led Israel straight to a dead end. Straight into a heap of rocks in a tunnel. But then as Mark helped us see several weeks ago from the text, that God is not in the business of redeeming His people from slavery to abandon them. God does not redeem His people to leave them. No, God was redeeming a people for Himself, taking them out into the wilderness that they might become worshipers. And so Moses took the staff that God had given him, and what did he do? He touched the Nile, and the atoms or molecules of hydrogen and oxygen, they obeyed God. The water split, it stood up, they stood up in a heap, And Israel walked through the Red Sea on dry land. And then a few moments later, God destroyed the mightiest army on earth with water. What follows these spectacular events is a number of scenes that we're coming to today. Five scenes, in fact. And what's interesting about these is that our text is explicitly mentioned by the Apostle Paul. Many of the events in our text this morning are mentioned all throughout Scripture. It is, it's really quite staggering. But Paul explicitly mentions them in the letter to the Corinthian church, and he even goes so far to tell us how we should apply them, which is why we read them a few moments ago. So we just heard this passage read, but if you'll look with me again at the two main application statements from this text... In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6, it says, Now these things took place as examples for us, so that we might not desire evil as they did. And again in verse 11, we see, Now these things happened to them, to Israel, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Now, our task this morning is not to walk all the way through 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It'd be a noble task, an interesting task, but that's not what's before us this morning. But we would be careless if we did not stop and acknowledge the help that Paul gives us here. 
Because he's saying that these things happened for us. Paul says these events happened for you. God split the Red Sea for you. Manna fell from heaven for you. The Nile was turned to blood for you. The rock was struck and water flowed out for you. These things happened for us as an example. But the text also says that they were written down for us. And we stand as beneficiaries of that miracle. We have an account. We have a written, preserved artifact of God's words to read, to meditate upon, and to memorize. And as Paul specifically says, that we are to be instructed by them so that we would not be like Israel. So that we would not desire evil like Israel did. So as we come to this text this morning, this written down account, we come with great expectation, we come with a magnifying glass, we come with hope, because we know that God has something for us this morning. That's my hope. I don't have anything to give you except for the Scriptures. So if you'll look with me, (laughs) we have 83 verses. Um, if ask any of the men who stand up here and preach, you cannot imagine how much pain it causes a preacher to skip verses. But uh, it would be too great a task to read all of them. So we have five major scenes in this text, and what I like to do is I like to read through some of it and summarize some of it. We're gonna we're gonna spend our time on the first three of these five scenes. And then I want to draw your attention to five lessons that we can learn from Israel's example in the wilderness. So if you'll open your copy of God's Word and look, starting in Exodus chapter 15, verse 22, and this is what we read. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he, Moses, cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God... And do what is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, then I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I, the Lord, am your healer. There they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. That's scene one. Scene two, Exodus 16, verse one. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we set by meat pots, and eat bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill, to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. 
And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because He has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you the, bre- gives you the evening meat to eat and the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against Him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, verse 9, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for He has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard your grumbling. I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and the morning dew lay on the ground. When the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread of the Lord that he's given to you to eat. Now let me pause for a moment. You'll notice that the provision of manna came with two very specific instructions for the Lord. And the rest of the chapter, which I'm not going to read, I encourage you to spend some time reading it this afternoon or tomorrow. The rest of this chapter gives an account of how Israel received this blessing of manna from the Lord. They were given two specific instructions. First, they were to gather enough for one day, and they were to do this day after day after day after day. The manna would appear again and again. But on the sixth day, they were to honor the Sabbath by collecting twice as much as the day before. And so the text says that on some, some gathered more and some gathered less. Those who gathered always had enough provisions for that day. Whoever had much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each gathered as much as he could eat. And then the text goes on to describe how though the Israelites were given two instructions, they of course broke both instructions. Verse 20 says, But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it until the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. And then in verse 27, On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. The third scene, the last scene we'll mention this morning. If you flip over to chapter 17, in verse 1 we read this. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, 
The people grumbled against Moses and they said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Verse 7, And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Have you ever found yourself in a, in a desperate situation? Have you ever asked the question, God, what are you doing with my life? Have you ever wondered, if God loves me, and if God has such a wonderful plan for my life, why is it so hard to get along with my parents? Why is school so frustrating? Why would God lead me into such a frustrating marriage with a difficult husband? Why am I struggling with depression or loneliness or fear or anxiety? Why am I sick? Why do I have chronic pain? Israel found themselves in a number of desperate situations. But if you remember that Paul says that these things happened specifically for us, for our example. If we could summarize Israel's primary failure, I think we could do it like this. Israel failed to believe that God is who He says He is. Israel's primary failure was that they failed to believe that God is who He says He is. When the circumstances became desperate, Israel failed to believe that God is really who He says He is. That God will do what He says He's going to do. That God's commandments are safe and good. They failed to believe it. And since they didn't believe that God is who He says He is, when the situation became desperate, they had no inclination and no ability to obey or trust God. We can relate to this, right? I, we, I mean, we can really relate to this. And if you don't feel like you can, Paul says you can. So we can relate to this. I'd like to draw your attention to five lessons that we can learn from Israel's example in the wilderness. The first is this. God often leads His people into desperate circumstances and He has the power to do otherwise. God often leads His people into desperate circumstances and He could do something else. We've seen this before. Do you remember a few chapters back or a couple weeks back when Israel was leaving Egypt? They had two directions to take. The text says that they could go through the land of the Philistines or they could go towards the Red Sea. And God directed them straight to the Red Sea. The point is obvious, but it's so crucial that our hearts begin to digest this, especially on bright days. Friends, God caused ten plagues. God can turn water into blood. He commands frogs to congregate. He tells them where to go. He tells them what to eat. 
Hundreds of billions of tiny lice submit to his will. I can't even get my dog to come when I call him. God has lice obeying him. Millions of flies and locusts, they went and they landed exactly where God said. He said to leave and they left. He opens the storehouses of hail. He rains lightning down and he flings it upon the earth. God commands it, animals die. God commands it, children die. God speaks speaks to bacteria and it infects the skin. It causes boils to rise. God speaks and they go away. He throws a blanket over the sun. He cuts the sky in half. Part is dark, part is light. God does this. He passes through the night. He strikes down His enemies. And He shapes the hearts of kings. The Scriptures say that they are like water in His hands. Who is this God? What can God not do? Could he not have accomplished could God not have accomplished his purpose with five plagues? What about two? What was God doing? Could God not have led Israel through the land of the Philistines and somehow given them, I don't know, a protective cloud to keep them from idolatry or danger? Could God not have given them water on say the second day instead of the third? Could God not have led Israel to a spot with sweet water instead of bitter? Or maybe God could have made it sweet ahead of time and not make them afraid? Could God not have led Israel straight to the twelve springs of Elam? Why manna? All God needs is what? Five loaves? Two fish? He turns stones to bread. He commands fish and they swallow people. He commands fish again and they spit people out. He commands fish again and they spit money out. He commands donkeys and they talk. God commands fish and they go into a net in the other side of a boat. He shuts the mouths of lions. He speaks to the sun. He says, sun, stand still. What's the sun do? The sun stands still. Who is this God? What can He not do? Friends, who is this God? God leads His people into desperate situations, often, other, often terrible situations, and He doesn't have to. He could have done something else. He could lead us elsewhere. He has the power to do otherwise, and so often He doesn't. Again and again and again, we see God leading His people into desperate situations, but it's never without purpose. It's never without purpose. Which brings us to the second point. God leads His people into desperate situations to test and to instruct us. God leads His people into desperate situations to test and to instruct us. The text explicitly describes God's intentions to test His people. We see it several times. I'm not making some inference. The text says God was testing His people. And in these scenes, we see a pattern emerge in both the incident of the bitter waters and then again in the provision of manna. The pattern is this. The people find themselves in a desperate situation. God responds saying, or at least God reveals to us that He's testing them. And then God graciously gives instruction or law. Let's look at the, uh, the narrative of the bitter waters again in, in verse, uh, chapter 15. Look, at, look with me in verse 25 and 26 if you can. The text says this, And he cried out, Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. 
And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord your healer. The Israelites were in the wilderness, more than two, two and a half million of them, and they immediately found themselves on the third day, and they had no water. If you don't have water, you die. Usually it only takes a couple days, right? The situation was desperate. If they didn't get water soon, they were all going to die, and there would be two million bodies in the wilderness of God's people. He had led them there to die. Moses cried out to God for help. In both incidents, in both the story of, uh, of manna coming and um, bitter water made sweet, we see that God is up to something. He's saying that He's testing them to see, the text says, whether they will walk in my law or not. Now, this may not initially be comforting, but it's extremely helpful to us. Why was God leading Israel into what seemed like dead end after dead end after dead end? Why? God was doing something. He was doing something. God was looking, are my people going to obey me? The text says, will my people walk in my law? Will my people trust me when they're thirsty? Now, we have the incredible benefit of something Israel didn't have, and that's perspective, right? It's easy to read history and know what you should have done. We have the benefit of perspective. Not only do we see the whole story of what was going to happen with Israel, and not only is it written down, but we have the whole story. The whole story. And we have, we have the book of James. And what does James tell us? You probably know it. James 1, verse 2. Count on all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith, listen, produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Did you catch these promises 